Good morning. It was when I was in first grade, I remember a sickly young wisp of a kid that would come into class and he would, he would just droop all the way to class. And as soon as he sat down, my teacher with gray hair, tall, kind of looking like olive oil, would lean over with a yardstick and go bang, bang, bang on his desk, wake up, and the class would laugh and laugh. This poor little kid, little Johnny, couldn't stay awake in class. Someone said that they had heard glass crashing in his house <clears throat> one night when they walked by, but nobody really knew what was going on in that house, but something was happening that kept him awake every night and he could not sleep. I've always, since I've been adult, wondered and felt stricken about that droopy little boy. Then there was Bill, who told his professor one day, I think I'm going to have to leave my wife. She wakes me up every morning by slapping my face. And then she laughs maniacally at me as I act really shocked. We're married for time and eternity, but I don't know if this is something I should be enduring. Then there was Gloria, who was kind of like a kitten in a barnyard with me. She'd come up and kind of stand by me and want to talk and just kind of be seen. She told me she had started dating a guy who would drop three or four hundred dollars on her when he took her out to dinner or he would buy her wonderful gifts and, and yet when they were alone he would force her to have sex with him and she'd always wanted to wait at least until she was committed, at least until they were engaged or they had some formalized relationship. But he makes me do this and I capitulate because he rapes me if I don't. Is that normal? He says he does it because I'm not willing. He says I'm frigid. No kidding. Who wouldn't be with that kind of behavior? Then I met Andrea, and she came to counseling because she was living out of her car and she really needed help coping. And I said, could I have an emergency phone number, please? And she said, just don't call it. I'm not sure how valuable that is as an emergency phone number. She said, if my partner knows that I'm coming here, she will beat me senseless. And she pulled up her sleeve, and she was covered with bruises. That's because I mentioned to a teacher that I might need counseling. We are surrounded by people who are not living happily ever after. If I were to ask, let's see, we have one, two, three, four, five, six. If I were to ask the transept and this group over here, or these two groups, to stand, I'm not going to, but if I were to, if you look around at these two groups, these two groups in this room represent those individuals who have been in a violent, in a sexually violent relationship in this room. Between 40 and 50% of all women experience some kind of sexual violence at the hands of someone they know. Is that happily ever after? What about the one in six men who are sexually assaulted and we're not even talking yet about prison incarceration. We're not talking about what other things happen in various other contexts where men are sexualized against their will. It's a huge problem. What do we say when someone comes to me and, and they say, I have real problems with anger? She was a little wisp of a woman. She said, I have a real problem with anger. What am I to do? So digging around and asking some questions, pretty soon I found out she'd better have a problem with anger because she was being beaten up and bullied every day 
You better be angry, but you're not quite angry enough. What do we do? Today I'm talking about all broken up about love. That's the name of my talk. And my premise is that you should never be broken up about love. As an illustration, I want to share with you what I consider to be the worst story in the Bible. And initially, when uh, Dr. Swenson asked me if I would give a chapel talk, I said, sure. And he said, well, it's about bad relationships. What do you want to talk about? And I quipped, oh, I'll talk about the Levite and his concubine. Ha, ha, ha. And lo and behold, that's what was published, and here I am. This is, to my, to my thinking, the worst story in the Bible. If any of you have your Bibles, you can turn to Judges 19, but I'm going to just summarize it because it's, it's really gruesome. If you want really, don't read it before you go to bed. It's really pretty bad. And I wonder, why would something like this be in our, in our Christian scriptures? It's actually in the Jewish scripture as well. But you might find this to be a very interesting illustration of when everything goes wrong in relationships. This is a story of a Levite who was a member of a tribe that was set aside for doing the priestly duties of um, Israel. This does not mean that this was a priest, the Levite in this story, but it just means that he was of the tribe that was set apart to do holy and temple kinds of behaviors. He had a concubine. Now we hear that word in the most pejorative terms. Concubine is really more like a second wife. There might not have been a marriage contract, but when men took a second wife, those women received the same benefits of marriage for the most part. Their children might receive slightly less inheritance, inheritances, but they would still be considered a wife of sorts. So here he has this wife, and according to the, the scripture, she ran away. Now one, I think it might be the King James Version, says she went a-whoring. She was prostituting herself according to one version of Scripture. And when you look at it in other versions of Scripture, it gives the indication that she was angry with her husband and she ran. Now, it, it strikes me that if she was really a whoring, as the King James says, she probably would have gone with the man she was having an affair with. Doesn't that make sense? But instead, she went to her father's home. So she went back to her father. And this is a very interesting point because in this day and age and in this culture, there was very little recourse for women on their own. So you had to align yourself with a man, either a son, a father, an uncle, a nearest of kin. So she ran away. I wonder, what made her so angry that she ran away? Did she have the right to run away? You know, it was very rare in those days and very scandalous for a woman to run away. But she ran away, and Scripture tells us that her husband went after her to her father's home. And one of the versions of the Bible, if you go to BibleGateway.com, um, you can read the story in every version of the Bible that exists. If any of you don't know that, you might be interested in comparing some of these versions. So her, father, her, her husband went after her to speak tenderly to her heart. Have any of you ever had anyone speak tenderly to you from their heart or to your heart? It absolutely melts you, and this is what he wanted. I'm going to bring her back. I'm going to bring her back and demonstrate to her that I'm a safe person, I'm a good person, and that she really belongs with me because I love her so much. That's the idea you would get from someone who's going to speak tenderly to the woman and woo her back. 
Scripture tells us that he got there and his father-in-law said, please stay with us, eat, drink, be merry, spend time with us. And so he did that not one, not two, but five days. And so he spent this time with his father-in-law, eating, drinking, enjoying himself. At a certain point, he said to his uh, wife, his concubine, he said, let's go home. So off they go. They thought, well, let's stop at this town as they were trying to go back to Ephraim to the hill country. Let's stop here and stay the night. And actually, um, they said, well, maybe not because these are not our people. We are Israelites. These are outside people. We don't feel as safe there. So let's keep going until we get to a city of our own people. And so they continued on. They got to Gibeah, which was in the land of Benjamin, and they stopped to spend the night. And typically, people would go to the city square and sit and wait. And in the Middle East, hospitality and offering water and refreshment and a place to stay is something that's a privilege to do, and especially in these ancient times. And no one invited them home. And there they sat in the city square, waiting, waiting, waiting. Nobody invited them home. And finally, an elderly man came who was from the same part of the country as this couple, and they sa- he said, oh, whatever you do, don't stay in the circle. Don't stay in town. Come home with me. So he took them home, and he gave them everything they needed. The next part of the story is really unsavory. It's really unfortunate. Pretty, this is where the plot thickens. At some point, the men of the village circled the house. Now, you'll, you'll see this, the same kind of behavior in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah where the angels went down to warn um, Lot and his family that they needed to get out of town because the city was going to be burnt to the ground. And when they went there, the men of the city circled and said, bring him out to us because we want to have sex with him. Now, we don't know all the issues around this, but something tells me this is kind of like that mentality where we're going to subjugate and humiliate. We are going to demonstrate our power along with getting some kind of sexual perverse pleasure from this experience. And so the man of the house said, don't do this, don't do this. And he said the exact same thing that Lot said, and here it is, one of the worst things in the Bible. I have a virgin daughter. Take her and do with her what you would like instead. They said, no, nothing doing. We want that man in there. Very interesting, eventually, it says that even though the, the host offered his daughter to these wild people outside the door, that the Levite took his own wife and thrust her out the door and said, take her. How's that for choice? How's that for protection? And they raped her and abused her all night. She was pretty much sacrificed on the altar of his safety. What happened to the hospitality? Because she was a guest in that home too, but apparently she didn't count. What she wanted, what she needed, how she felt, none of that was taken into account. After a night of being abused, she struggled back to the house and she fell prostrate on the ground with her hands on the threshold. Now, 
the Greek scripture says that she was dead, and the Hebrew scripture just says that she collapsed, and she didn't respond when she was spoken to. We hope, when you hear the rest of the story, that she was dead. But there she lay, and what does the, what does the Levite do? This godly man, this man who went to speak tenderly to his concubine, he said to her, get up, let's get going. Get up, let's get going. The coldness, the indifference of that is almost beyond comprehension. Get up. You've served me well, get up. The other thing that's quite interesting is that the language changes in this story. In the beginning, she was called, in Hebrew, she was called a concubine. At the end of the story, he refers to her, the Levite refers to his concubine, to his wife, as my maid servant. How is it that someone in a relationship can go from a wife to a servant? He put her body over the donkey. He returned home with her body. He cut her into 12 pieces and sent her to all the 12 tribes and said, this is what has happened when those men tried to harm me. There was nothing about the loss of his wife. There was nothing about her suffering. There was nothing about the lack of hospitality. It was to incite war. It was for violence, and it had nothing to do with her well-being. I want to turn from that because I think there are some parallels that we would be remiss not to look at. What does this horrible tell, a story tell us about the relationships that we should have and that we shouldn't have? Number one, no one should treat you in a way where you don't feel better, happier, more content, and more loved, and more capable of loving. If those things are not in place, Send up a red flag and start really being aware of what's going on. Both men and women can be approached and treated as though they have no value. Both men and women. You know, the interesting thing about domestic violence um, statistics is that we typically think that men are the abusers and women are the abusees, the ones who receive the abuse. And actually, what we have found is, depending on your statistics source, where you get your data from, is that there is a lot more similarity between the experiences of men and women in uh, violent relationships, the difference being that women sustain much worse injuries, and the, f the pattern of abuse is typically quite a bit different. Now, about 25% of abuses reported to law enforcement and to on the national studies are about are about men. About 25% of those are about men uh, as victims. About 75% of the victims are reported to be women. Now, here's an important point: if you have shelter statistics, usually those statistics are uh, gathered when you count the number of women that come into those um, shelters. And many times they have chronic abuse issues, and their injuries are more serious, and a, a vastly more a greater number of them have experienced partner rape. That's what you find from shelter statistics. Then you have statistics that come from uh, police records. When a police officer goes out for a domestic disturbance, what they find 
and what they record actually depends on whether someone had to get medical treatment or whether there was an apprehension made for some kind of felonious behavior. And then you have counselor's office, which is typically the third way that people get uh, this kind of data. And counselors usually see people who are more motivated to make changes. And counselor office statistics will say that men and women equally start fights and equally hit and abuse each other. But it's a different population, as you can see. Well, we come away from these horrifying stories and we say, well, how do we live happily ever after? How do we avoid these kinds of relationships that go sour? And what is it that sets us up to get involved in these relationships in the first place? And they happen to men and to women. I wrote, um, I've edited three books on domestic partner violence. And the first one that I wrote, I thought, this is my baby, this is my first publication, and I. I showed it to, to a man that I wanted his opinion because I thought so highly of him. And he read it, and I said, well, what did you think? And he said, I hated it, <laughs> which I didn't really want to hear. And I said, what was wrong with it? And he goes, this is all about the men being victim, victimizers and the women being victims. He goes, I have been victimized. I have been beaten up. I have had all kinds of financial abuse from my wife. And who's standing up for me? Where is the shelter for men who are abused? Who does rape checks in the emergency room on men? I had to stop and think. It flows both ways, even though the injuries are significantly worse for women across the board. We have to be aware of that. Abuse occurs in every religious group, every racial group, every socioeconomic status. It occurs across every um, sexual orientation grouping that there is. About equally. Now this is an interesting point. We consider that people who abuse other people look a certain way and they don't have very much money. They live on the other side of the tracks. They don't look like me. They look like a... But that's not true because if we really look at history, we find out that Aristotle Onassis, one of the most wealthy men in the world of his time, used to beat his mistress until he collapsed. And there is a well-known prime minister who was publicly censured for abusing his wife. This is not limited to any particular group. But as I do research in my role as Director of Physician Vitality, I have been looking at resources for women doctors who are abused. Do you know how many articles there are in the last 50 to 100 years in medical literature about women physicians that are abused? One. One. We don't think it happens to certain people in certain groups, but it happens according to the emotional brokenness of the person. It doesn't happen according to your demographic strata. Up to 10 million children witness partner violence every year, and every nine seconds a woman is beaten by an intimate partner. That's pretty sobering. How do we avoid that kind of thing? How do we get away from that? Before I go there, I want to share with you that it's not just the physical abuse that is harmful to people. And I've worked with so many women who say, if I just had a big bruise to show, then someone would feel sorry for me and recognize that I've been through something. But when I'm beaten down day after day verbally, I have nothing to show. And I don't get the support that I need. 
How do people get beaten down verbally? Men and women do this by name calling, calling the, your partner a sexual name, yelling, swearing, cursing, breaking items, making it look like you're so angry you could dismember that person, saying to the other person, your feelings don't matter, that's not what happened. Forgetting, baffle gabbing, baffle gabbing is using very high-flown sounding language to try to make the other person feel stupid. We have all experienced some of this in some form from someone in our lives, whether it's family, friend that we quickly dismissed, teacher, whoever it is, we experience these things, why marry it? There are models about the cycle of abuse that we can find all over the internet, the tension building stage where the person who is typically abused is feeling like they have to walk on eggshells, don't say the wrong thing, keep the kids quiet, make sure everything is perfect because one wrong step and there'll be an outburst verbally or a physical outburst or I will have to pay. These kinds of individuals end up in primary care physicians' offices. About 50% of these people in this phase will go to a physician's office for a checkup about something like GI upset or stiff muscles or headaches or something that's vague and we really can't find a good explanation for it. Some people will be so tired of waiting for that escalation and outburst that they will make something happen and there'll be a big blow up. And the interesting thing is when there's a big blow up, that they often don't remember what the other person, uh, what they did, but they remember every move that that other person made. Tragic. This is not the way God intended us to live. The honeymoon period is where that person who abused thinks, gee, I could actually lose this relationship, and I need this relationship to make me feel like I'm somebody because I have absolute control in this relationship, and if I can't control this person, this situation, then I feel like a zero. And that's when the honeymoon period starts. Flowers, dinner, promises, tears, all these things. We learn our relationship skills on TV. We learn our relationships on romantic novels. Uh, none of these things are, are correct. Do you know that statistically people who enjoy watching romantic comedies have a harder time maintaining a marriage? than those who don't. Now we all love chick flicks, I do. But how realistic are these things? What do they teach you about maintaining a relationship? We won't even get to the drama and slashers that a lot of guys watch. So what do we do? Here's some quick bulleted points. Make haste slowly. Move ahead in your relationships a little bit slowly if you feel rushed that could be a form of control. If you are asked and demanded to do things before you feel ready, before there's any mutuality, be careful. Observe how your loved one interacts with their family, with their friends. Find out about them. Find out what people are saying about them. Observe them in different social situations to find out how comfortable they are with themselves because typically a person who abuses is uncomfortable with themselves, has a very fragile ego, and needs somebody else to be perfect to make up for their own lack. Be careful of those things. Do they take your thoughts seriously? Do they want to know your dreams so that they can support them? Is there any shred of fear or hesitation you have? 
I'm thinking about the couples that I see when I stand up here and I speak in church. You, you can see me, but you, what you forget is that I can see you. And everyone who stands up here can see you. And when I'm up here, there are couples that sit a mile apart and they look like they're going to go home and fight all afternoon after church. And there are people who sit there so sweetly, um, about a mile apart. And there are people who are together on principle. But there was a couple once that I saw and that I see them on a regular basis. They're not the most beautiful people that you would say, wow, they should be movie stars. But they sit close, he listens to her, she touches his face. You can see they have mutual respect, mutual love. They communicate beautifully. And these are the kinds of people, not the beautiful ones that do these daring things and get hooked up in these relationships that are a little bit dangerous. It's the people who are stable, steady. It's in the restaurant when the waitress says, well, what do you want for dessert? And he puts his hand over on his wife's hand and says, I live with my dessert. <laughs> you are awake. We, we need to think about relationships, about relationships that are sweet, that are passionate. A relationship you want to be in when you're 50, 60, 70, 80 years old. You can live happily ever after. You can live happily ever after. You have to work at it, and you're going to be hearing this week about how you do that. But my hope is that when you seek for relationships for yourself, that you will understand that a more abundant life means a more abundant relationship. And God help you that you will navigate these waters as you find partners, as you strengthen the relationships that you have, and as you make yourselves better people so that you could be the answer to someone's prayer for happily ever after.